Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. Well, today is April 22nd. It's a beautiful day here in Hong Kong, and I'm very pleased to have Keiko Sindanam as our guest on today. Keiko, thanks very much for joining the Reorient podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Very exciting. <laughs> we're, we're really thrilled. You're our first guest who's Japanese, who um, can discuss Japan, um, So, which is obviously an important part of the Asia-Pacific region. So it's a very special for us to have you on. So Keiko, I, I'd like to first ask just a little bit about your background. Um, can you share with us sort of where you grew up? Yeah, sure. So I grew up a small or a mid city in Nagoya in Japan. So that's where my hometown is. And afterwards, I went to uh, college in Tokyo. And then afterwards, oh, actually, I spent a little bit like multiple places like in Russia, Moscow, and in Washington, D.C., where I graduated uh, science Johns Hopkins and then New York afterwards uh, I worked through from uh, 2001 to 2003 so now then afterwards I back to Tokyo and working so most of the time now is my life is in Tokyo so uh, you know uh, most recently um, uh, Keiko you were um, a very senior director at Blackstone group in, in Japan is that correct mm-hmm yep so tell us a little bit about what what type of work you were doing at Blackstone and what, what was the firm's um, sort of main objectives in Japan? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was responsible for capital raising. So basically, uh, my title was head of client institutional client solutions, which is uh, I'm responsible for advising and supporting capital raising for uh, Blackstone's funds uh, from uh, institutional investors in Japan. So institutional investors uh, are mainly like, you know, government pension funds or like major banks and insurance companies and corporate pensions. And then, yes. you know, Blackstone Japan is actually started as a real estate investment location. So we have a heavy investment uh, in real estate as Blackstone Japan. And then you know, um, afterwards, uh, we decided to do uh, more marketing of uh, fundraising side. So, which is like 2013, we kind of like put the resource in there. And then more recently, uh, we started private equity investment in Japan. So, we're pretty active in investment in Japan as well. So when you were raising funds capital, was it primarily for the global funds that are primarily United States, but they could potentially invest in some of the Blackstone's Japan funds as well? Yes, exactly. So mm-hmm. oh, we don't have actually the regional standalone fund. Blackstone doesn't have it. And so it's everything is about like a global fund, but as a part of uh, a global, uh, we could invest in Japan. Understood. Now, um, obviously, Japan as the world's, or it certainly was the world's second largest economy. I'm not sure if, if China has surpassed Japan yet. Um, it probably depends on how you measure it. But, uh, you know, fair, fair to say the world's second largest economy with a huge savings rate. Um, 
So it would make sense that um, large institutions would want to tap into this uh, enormous savings uh, pool of savings in Japan uh, as a source for uh, capital for their investment funds. Could you give us a sense for um, you know typical large Japanese institutional investors? What were they looking for as they thought about allocating to private equity or real estate funds? Yes. So this is very uh, still like, you know, we call it like a private market investment is very beginning for Japanese uh, institutional investors. So a main investment for long, long, long time has been like just sitting in JGB. Yes. You know. Which I should add for our audience has been actually a fantastic investment for many decades, surprisingly, <laughs> because of the uh, appreciation of the Japanese yen mm. and also the decline in the uh, rate on the JGB, which means a higher price. So it surprisingly turned out to be a very wise investment for many decades. Right, right. Yeah. Mm. But for Japanese investors, this is like basically no currency appreciation, and actually, this is, you know, we don't sell the, the, the bonds. So basically, it's a buy and hold. So it's kind of like, you know, now is a negative interest rate is implemented. So it's no way that you could just put in the money like JGB and then hoping that it's going to grow the money. So yes. um, so that's that's, you know, shift a lot, actually. And so basically, for most of the institutional clients um, have been invested in JGB or like Japanese stock and then which you know Japan's stock market is like staggered for the last I don't know <laughs> 20 years you know post you know bubble burst so it, it's very hard to put the money work uh, if you just like invest in Japan and then you know started uh, investing in a foreign bond foreign stock and then now it's because I think it's the long dated like negative rate really pushed towards uh, investing in private market investment, which is you know kind of a universal uh, trend. Uh, but for Japan, it's like really like otherwise you cannot put any money like in there. So big move was uh, as as to like institutional investors. Big move was like you know. Uh, the government uh, related organization got privatized, which is like you know, like Japan Post Bank or like others. So those those are uh, started you know actively allocating to alternative space uh, to diverse uh, their portfolio, and also the you know world's biggest pension fund, so to say, government pension fund, um, GPIF. So they announced their uh, started uh, alternative investment in 2015 to target 5% allocation of their portfolio to be in private equity, real estate, and infrastructure. So, but it's still like, it's, it's very, very, I think it, for their college portfolio is uh, just below like 1%, I think 0.8% is in that you know, area. So it's potentially like, you know, it grows, um, I mean, it has to <laughs> potentially like it grows uh, more to alternative investment. So um, for the benefit of our audience, I, I make a couple of points. One is the uh, Japanese stock market actually still hasn't reached its the historic peak. Um, so if you look at the topics, 
it peaked somewhere around 2,880 back in 1989, and today sits at 1,920 or so. So uh, we're still way off mm-hmm. <laughs> from the record peak, uh, and it's as you said, it's sort of it's kind of gone up and down, but really has been in a in a, in a channel for effectively um well gosh i mean no i guess almost 30 years um so uh i'm getting old because i remember (laughs) some of it um and the second thing i would mention is that the japanese institutions seem to be a little bit late compared to certainly um uh, u.s and perhaps european institutions in allocating towards private investments and uh you know my other alma, alma mater yale university uh, David Swinson um, sort of fa- created this foundation model or endowment model, mm-hmm. and that was endowment investing was going into a lot of private type investments, and he did this many decades ago. And I think today Yale um, has maybe even more than fifty percent in these type of private investments because it's viewed as a way to um, to really have the best chance of of reaching high higher returns than certainly one can get investing in bonds or even the stock market. So it's interesting that Japan, I guess, Japanese institutions have arrived at the same conclusion, but perhaps are still somewhat cautious and certainly much later than uh, certainly United States and probably European peers. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah. Um, you know, they, they, they could have like uh, put a little bit more uh, ambitious targets, but, you know, it's as Japan is very risk averse, you know, culture and, and nature. So, you know, they just like go slow by slow. So what is the typical uh, target or benchmark for a large uh, Japanese institution? Benchmark for oh, allocation. I'm sorry, the return, a part of me. What's um, the typical return target for these Japanese uh, large institutions? It's very diff- different, actually. Uh, and if you see uh, banks, it's, of course, like they have a higher target. And then uh, if the, they goes to like insurance companies, really like uh, depends on IML uh, policy. But in general, like um, pension funds is like now is two to three percent as a target, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because that is the uh, promised target uh, rate for the uh, pension fund uh, and members. And so that was uh, for at least like for last ten years, it's around like that two to three percent, and then Japanese embassy. So if you uh, want to invest in U.S. and U.S. dollar basis, then, you know, hedging cost is, you know, means a lot. So sometimes like, you know, for the last few years is really high, like around like 4% of the hedging cost. It means that you need to earn 6% or, you know, uh, 8% mm-hmm. in the U.S. dollar basis. So that is the calculation. Yes, uh, that makes sense. Is it fair to say that the Japanese institutions would have a, a lower target return also because their sort of cost of capital uh, is lower or yeah. some sort of? Yeah. Yes, yes, definitely. Yeah. And as you know, we are living in deflationary world for a long time. Yes. So we don't really put some in, in, in um, calculation is like, you know, expected inflation a lot. So that is another thing. Okay. Well, that's really a wonderful segue, perhaps, to uh, to Abenomics, uh, which is sure. something um, 
that I'm really keen to talk to you about. I think it's very important. So we have um, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who came back to serve as Prime Minister of Japan for the second time, I believe, beginning in 2012. And he came back with a with a very clear program to end deflation in Japan, which had been in place since, you know, the 90s. So really over two decades and uh, that he'd be very, many Japanese views, very destructive uh, to Japan. So he came back with a clear program of sort of reigniting Japanese growth. And that was called Abenomics. So we'd love to hear from you, uh, first of all, like what is what exactly what is Abenomics and to what extent has it been uh, successful? Yeah, thank you. So Abenomics, um, you know, as it describes, like basically a really target to kill this differentially situation and make the Japan economy growth again. So Abenomics basically has a three arrows, we call. So first arrow is, they say, uh, flexible or they use the words like a decisive uh, monetary mm. policy. So mm. and to kill this desperation and and they implemented actually like extraordinarily quantitative easing and then bringing uh, inflation target of two percent. However, this you know inflation target is like sometimes like really hard to achieve um, mm. at the end and and then they also put somehow like you know they have a tax hike implementation as well you know hoping mm. that you know this bring up somehow like you know inflation target to two percent but you know every time like some you know all market disruption happens uh the basically japan couldn't really exit this uh quantitative easing mm-hmm. so that was a little bit of trouble and you know of course if the uh if quantitative easing is continuous, then you know stock market go up, and then that goes up actually uh, in short time. But eventually, uh, because of the uh, actual uh, GDP growth is staggered, and it is staggered like for over like ten years uh, below two percent, you know GDP growth of Japan. So um, it is very um, economic policy. The post era has lots of contradictory argument, actually. Uh, many experts uh, feel that it was, like, not succeeded. Mm. And then many say that it still, like, helped, you know, stock market a little bit, and it was uh, good. And then also, like, the announcement of the government was actually positively worked, uh, especially uh, to um, international uh, audience, I believe. Mm, so I guess when, when thinking about, sorry to interrupt, um, when thinking about sort of the success of Abenomics, because it's really aimed at growth, I believe, um, what are sort of the key measures that um, Japanese public or Japanese policymakers were looking to to um, to evaluate how successful it was? Are they looking at the stock market? Are they looking at consumer prices? Are they looking at employment? They're looking at GDP growth? Something else? Uh, yes, I think you know, ultimately is a this CPI is a, is one of the key item, mm-hmm. and the GDP growth and the GDP growth like you know it all comes to actually uh, of other 
subset of policy, but you know, we have a huge issue as Asian society. So our demographic, you know, um, uh, diversification yes. is really like you know, over sixty-five year old uh, population is now thirty percent of whole like Japanese population. So that is like really like you know uh, how to support this GDP growth with this aging society is a huge mm-hmm. issue. And right, because you're going to have fewer, uh, a, a smaller percentage of population who's working, mm-hmm. um, supporting a larger, a growing popu- percentage of population that's not working, who's uh, elderly. And on top of that, you have an overall population that's shrinking. So it's like a double effect, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, um, well, let me ask you another question. So, is to what extent was Abenomics the formula more or less what was being prescribed by you know Western, you know, particularly United States, you know, sort of policy types, you know, that uh, worked in the Clinton administration or Bush administration, you know, those economists, you know, mm-hmm. that whether they were talking about Reaganomics or Clintonomics, but the idea was liberal, you know, liberalize um, markets, open up, you know, to competition, open up labor markets. And that was sort of the, the key, in addition to perhaps a lot of maybe perhaps stimulus, fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, mm-hmm. but how much of these this formula really is borrowed from from what the they were particularly the United States was was really pushing Japan to do going back, you know, even in the nineteen eighties. Mm. Yeah, so I, I think um, you know, the the economics are like kind of like compared to like leg in the mix. Uh, for a long time, because like they put like a lot of like physical policy in it, and and then he he wants uh, uh increase the government spending, uh, especially focused on the infrastructure. However, like again, like we have um problem as uh our national debt is a high uh, ratio of GDP, which is like two times of GDP, which is very high. Uh, if you compare it to other uh, developed country, so mm. um, but so this is a, you know kind of like stimulus package uh, that the government uh, tried to put it forward, and I think you know in in terms of the economics, um, uh, main reason that is not successful as expected is uh, once uh, the government uh, input the um, tax hike, con- uh, consumption tax hike from mm-hmm. 5% to 10% is still low, but, you know, it, then kind of like consumption killed, like it's, it was killed uh, pretty severely. So, and then also the salary increase did not happen as expected. So, so that is like, you know, uh, the real uh, GDP itself, like um, not really growing. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.